All right, so this morning I'm going to talk about God's plan for the family. And we're going to take an overview of what it is that God's uh, looking for. So what are some of the plans that you have for your families or for your children? Have you ever thought through what your plan would look like or what it would be? Is your plan just to hang on to your kids until they turn 18 and then just let them loose on the world? Is your... <laughs> We've got one yes. <laughs> Is, <laughs> is your plan to make them as successful as they can possibly be in their careers and in their school? Is it to uh, have them in as many activities now as possible? I was talking to a friend and she was telling me about something that she knew. And she said that his parents had a specific plan and they wanted him to succeed at all costs. And so they drove him to excel at everything that he did. He had to do well in school. He had to do good in everything he did. He had no choice. There was no option to do anything at all. The summer after his high school year, the pressure was too much. He tried to commit suicide. He took pills. They sent him to the hospital. Uh, they pumped his stomach, and he was fine. But you know what? Afterwards, the parents didn't do anything. Parents didn't say anything to him. Parents didn't take him to counseling. Parents didn't do anything. They pumped his stomach one week. They sent him off to college the next week, and that was it. The person is still driven. They stay up till 12 or 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. They get up at 6 o'clock the next day, and they start working again. His parents' plan was to make him successful at all costs. Is your plan to have as little conflict in the home as possible? Is it just to have peace at all costs where we don't rock the boat, so to speak? I heard of another couple who got married. And they just got married. Three months into their marriage, the mother-in-law flies down wants to take him out to lunch. And the husband doesn't go. In fact, he doesn't even get off the couch when they go to that. The reason why? He didn't want to go to lunch. He didn't want to go to lunch with his mother-in-law. That was it. See, he was the youngest at home, and he always got his way. No one ever wanted to rock the boat. No one ever wanted to give him a hard time. And now you know what? His wife is going to have to pay the price. Because she's either going to rock the boat and suffer the consequences of rocking that boat. Or she's going to spend her entire life trying to still the waters so that there is no problem, so that life goes fine. But you know what? She's not going to be able to do it. She just simply can't. And she's going to spend this time stressed out. Those are the only two choices that this wife has. So we don't know what God's plan is as far as our children go, as far as God's plan for their career and for their marriage, etc. But we do know what God's plan is for raising them. And God's plan for our raising our children is to raise children for his eternal glory. We don't raise children for our glory, for us to look good, or for others to think that we've done well. We don't raise our kids just to be successful so that they have good jobs and are well paid. Right? We raise kids for God's eternal glory. We raise kids to know Christ, to love Christ, to share Christ. And so I want to take this section and just look at this overview of God's plan for the family. And I want to look at the roles that he um, has in them. So this one might be a little more theoretically, so to speak, and the other ones that follow uh, might be a little more practical. But we need to build this foundation so that when we step into these other uh, sessions and when we go to train our kids and we try to raise them, we have this biblical foundation on there. So, first of all, we're going to look at what uh, the Bible says throughout just about how God views children. That's where I want to start. So, in the very first book, in the very first chapter, we see God create the family. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So, God created man in his image. In the in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God made man and woman in his image. And he told them to have a family. He told them to have children. And this family becomes the basic building blocks of what our society is made of, what all of history is made of, is through families. So this is not to say that a marriage without children is an incomplete marriage. Because in chapter 2 of that same book of Genesis, God says a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man 
and wife can be complete without children, according to God. And that's not to say that a single parent with children is not a family. And that's not to say that, that a couple who, one is a believer and one is an unbeliever, is somehow or another not a whole family, but they are a whole family. And the children are blessed. If you listen to 1 Corinthians 7.14, it says this. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So we can see that the child of a holy parent is considered holy by God himself. And if you're a single parent, it says that your children are considered holy before him because you are a believer before God. As we look at scripture, we see too that, that children are a gift from God. So in the Old Testament, we have the story of Jacob. And Jacob leaves his land. He's a young, single guy. He takes off, and he's gone for 20 years. He's kind of chased off, kind of a big story where he wanted, his brother wanted to kill him, so he leaves. He's gone for 20 years. 20 years later, he, he comes back, and he meets his brother. His brother's no longer angry. He doesn't want to kill him anymore. And his brother rushes out to see him. And here's Jacob coming back, and he's got all these children. He's got... Uh, does he have four wives and 12 children? No, that's not right, is it? Two wives. So anyway, he's got <laughs> four of these, 12 of these, right? <laughs> Big whole crew. He's got servants, he's got this, and all these people are coming back and coming back. And his brother runs out to meet him. And his brother looks and says, he says, who are all these children? Who are these people that are with you? And Jacob says, these are the children whom God has graciously given. Years later, Jacob is old. And Jacob's son, Joseph, is sold into slavery. And Joseph, Jacob is told that his son Joseph is killed. So he thinks his son is dead. Years later, he is reunited with his son. And his son brings these children to him. And Jacob says, who are they? And Joseph said, these are my sons whom God has given me. Children are given to us by God. They are a gift by God. And even though they're a gift by God, and they're ours, so to speak. They're only in one sense ours because they're really children of God. And so we're really um, caretakers, in a sense, of the children that God has given us. And because they're God's children, God gives commands that they are to be taught and that they are to be trained. And in Deuteronomy, uh, we have the Israelites there, and they came out of Egypt, and so they're going to be a nation by themselves. They've been slaves up to this point, they're a nation. God's giving them all these uh, rules to follow, and these things to say. This is how you go from being not a people to a people. And one of the things he says is to train the children. He says, you shall teach them diligently the law. You shall teach them to your, diligently to your children. You should talk about it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And if, you, if they do this, God says it will go well with you. They will continue to be blessed by God. And he says, from generation to generation, from children to children to children. We also see, as we're looking through this, that God takes obedience very seriously. So, again, God is setting up this law. And nothing. these people have done nothing. They're coming out of slavery in there. And God's anticipating all the different situations that are going to come up. And he anticipates the situation where he's got a godly parents and an unruly child. And God is saying, this is going to happen. And he says, this is what you should do when this happens. And so it says, if a man has a stubborn and a rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they should say to the elders, this is our son, or this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men in the city should stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and shall fear. This is how serious God takes this. For it's ever happened, he's already said, this is what you do if your, if your son just will not listen. He's stubborn. He's rebellious. The father has tried to teach him and obey him and discipline him or get him to obey. The mother 
has tried to get him to obey, has tried to discipline him. Together they've tried to do this, and the son just will not. And God says, this is how serious obeying parents are. It's huge. One of the clearest verses, um, if you want to write this down, in all of the Old Testament, in my opinion on God's design for family, is Malachi 2.15. And in Malachi, God is, the prophet Malachi is talking about what they've done wrong. They're like, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong, you need to turn, you need to turn, you need to turn. And in the midst of kind of telling them what they're doing wrong, he says, he's talking about husbands and wives, he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in the union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So we see that God's plan, what God desires is godly offspring. So God's plan for the family is for us to raise children for his eternal glory. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is glorified when our children become saved, when they come to this knowledge of truth. So, as we talk about roles and look around at parents and children, there's a couple things, there's one concept, there's a few concepts that we need to understand and we're going to talk through them, but one of them is the concept of authority and submission. Authority and submission, because this is huge. Because in order for anything to work, there must be a plan. And there are positions that need to be filled, roles, so to speak, and there are responsibilities that need to be carried out. It's the same thing in the family as it is anywhere else, because this is God's design. So God's plan in everything is always orderly. And authority is one of the ways that God has instituted to do this, right? So all people live under authority. This is a simple fact in life, right? We have a government, we have police, we have bosses, we have teachers. Every one of us lives under authority. And as we take submission and authority, we see that this is a, this is a picture of the Trinity um, as well. So we have this verse right here. Uh, it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. In the Gospel of John, over 30 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that he was sent to the earth by the Father to do the Father's will. As one commentator puts it, he says, clearly, a central part of the Father is that of fatherly authority. So the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to both the Son and the Father. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, in God, diversity of persons serves a unit. Let me just say this before I uh, start this part here. Sometimes we think of, of authority and submission, we think of that rebellious thing, where we think we don't want to do it, right? We have this natural you know, tendency against authority. You know, it's like you're driving down the road, you see a cop falling behind you, he turns on the road, even if you're only doing 30 and a 35, you kind of tense up right away. There's that kind of natural uh, thing about authority in there. With the Father and the Son, there isn't. Um, it's not one against another, right? But they're working together. They're working for the same goal. And so Wayne Grudem commenting on this, how, they, how there's this diversity, submission, authority, yet they're working for the same goal. He says this, In God, diversity of persons serves as a unity of purpose, method, and goal. The will of the Father is gladly carried out by the Son. When the Spirit comes, it is his joy to do the will of the Son. In purpose, they are united. In roles, they are distinct. And in both purpose and role, there is glad acceptance. Together, the three persons model what our diversity in unity of relationship should look like in how our lives together are to be lived. Another commentator, when he's talking about um, subordination, he says this. He says, um, subordination is not inferiority, but it is godlike. Let me say it again. Subordination is not inferiority. It is godlike. It's not a mark of inferiority to be subordinate, 
or to have an authority or to obey, it is divine. Authority and submission in the, in the family is a picture of authority and submission in the Trinity. It's a picture of God himself. And, you know, we instantly recognize, right, when that submission, when that authority and that submission is wrong. Don't we? How many times have you been, like, in the grocery store or in, like, Walmart or Target, and you see this little kid, right? And the kid is spoiled rotten. And the little kid is, like, sassy. He's demanding his own way. He's just going, right? And how many times do they talk back to the parents and they yell at the parents? And the parents don't do anything, right? Have you seen that? Have you been in there? And it's just like, how on earth can we parents put it, it's like, I'd be like, you know, <laughs> doing something, but lots of times the parents just laugh, right? And they just kind of think it's cute. Ah, it's cute when they're little. What happens when these kids grow up, right? So I went online and I wanted to find a picture just to kind of illustrate it, and I wanted to find a picture with a little kid that had a shirt on that said, um, you know, spoiled rotten. You know, you see those, see those all the time. And you know what the first thing, when I did a Google search for spoiled rotten kids, you know what the first thing came up was? Stores. They were shopping stores. So, spoiled rotten kids consignments, spoiled rotten baby children and teen furniture, spoiled rotten kids boutique, spoiled rotten kids spa. So, <laughs> this is the funny one. The spoiled kids rotten spa was, <laughs> I was intriguing, right? So I had to go to the website. I had to look at what it was like this. So check out this. This is what they have. This place is a spoiled rotten tweens and kids spa party bus. <laughs> That's right. So the Spoiled Rotten Kids Spa, this is right from the website now. Spoiled Rotten Kids Spa is now a full-service kids spa on wheels. We have a state-of-the-art, never-been-done-before, 20-foot heated and air-conditioned trailer. It is fully equipped to serve every little diva that lives in Philly, Maryland, D.C., or Virginia from the ages of 2 to 16. So I'm just picturing like a party bus full of spoiled rotten two-year-olds. I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> I can see when they're a little bit older, maybe. And it's funny, because I had to admit, it's like when the kids are a little bit older, I thought, well, this would be a pretty fun birthday party for the kids, right? They all go in, they take the bus, they go around, you know, all this stuff. But the thing is, what is the focus? The focus isn't that we're going to get all these, all these uh, you know, kids, these little girls, and we're going to take them out and put them on the party bus and do all that, which would just be a plain fun thing, right? But the focus is that they're spoiled, rotten kids who need this, right? And it sounds cute, but it isn't if you think about it, right? Because it's this disregarding authority. It's kids that always have to have their own way. And this is just plain not good, this rebellion against authority and not wanting to submit. So um, anyway, if you're in Maryland, D.C., Philly, Virginia, <laughs> And you need the website? Let me know. <laughs> um, now we're going to look at uh, roles in family and more specific. So when we look at the specific roles in family, in order to do this, there's one more concept that we really need to kind of dig in and explain. It's a little bit uh, heady the theological kind of a thing, but we need to look at it. And this is what are the roles between husbands and wives. Because there's two different... Uh, thoughts that go into this. One is called complementarianism and one is called egalitarianism. So, uh, I got this on the, uh, online here and I'm just going to go ahead and read this because I think it does a good job of explaining it. He says, on the one side are the egalitarian, egalitarians who believe that there are no gender distinctions and that since we are all one in Christ, women and men are interchangeable when it comes to the functional roles in leadership, and in the household. So that's one, egalitarianism. The opposing view is held by those who refer to themselves as complementarians. The complementarian view believes in the essential equality of men and women as persons, human beings created in God's image. But complementarians hold to gender distinction when it comes to functional roles in society, the church, and in the home. What is truly the crux of this argument and what many egalitarians fail to understand is that a difference in role does not equate to a difference in quality, importance, or value. Men and women are equally valued in God's sight and plan. Women are not inferior to men. Rather, God assigns different roles to men and to women in the church and the home. 
because that is how he designed us to function. The truth of differentiation and equality can be seen in the functional hierarchy within the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. This functional submission does not imply an equivalent inferiority of essence. All three persons are equally God, but they differ in their function. Likewise, men and women are equally human beings, equally share the image of God, but they have God-ordained roles and functions that mirror the functional hierarchy within the Trinity. So, we at King and Grace Church are complementarianisms. We believe that God has designed these different roles. And we believe that these roles are to function in the marriage and in the family. Um, yes. Uh, it's, it's not Grudem, but Grudem would have one basically identical to it. I, this one came from a uh, website that says gotquestions.org, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. But if you look at, uh, so what he's talking about was Wayne Grudem, John Piper, some other guys wrote a book um, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You can get that online. You don't have to buy it. You can just go online and you can just download it. So a bunch of these questions that specific to do that, if you just type that in or Wade Groom, Manhood, Womanhood, you can get it. And that's like, you know, a thick book that has all this. So that isn't Grudem, but it's like Grudem. So, um, so we get some of this. We're not going to take a lot of time to go into the background of this, but just here's a couple of verses just to look at. It says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. In these passages, it says that God the Father is the head of Christ, and that Christ is the head of every man, and that the husband is the head of the wife, and that the parents are the head of the children. In Scripture, there's this chain of command, so to speak, and this order, and this order begins with God the Father. So this isn't a plan that we came up with. This is the plan of God himself. This is the reflection of him in the Trinity, how the Father is the head of the Son. And so we have the same thing that's worked out into our families. And our families and our roles in there can teach us how to submit to God. Because we are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as children, we need to see what our role is in there. And we need to embrace God's rightful authority over our lives. And we need to always submit to the will of the Father. So, we want to take a look at the father's role first, and then we're going to look at the, at the mother's role uh, after that. Um, the father's role. God has called men to serve as leaders in the home. God has called men to exercise this leadership. And he tells them that they are to do it in a loving, gentle, and considerate way. Whenever we look at the roles that God has given us, right, we need to recognize that sin always comes in and distorts it. Sin always comes in and tries to make it worse. Sin always tries to come in and abuse any opportunity or anything that God does this. So uh, there's a guy named Jerry Miller. He lived in the 1800s. He wrote an excellent little book um, just on how to have a happy home, basically. I don't forget what it is. That may even be the name of it. But he, just, he, he wrote this well and just kind of described this tendency for men to try to abuse this and what it is. And he says this. He says, Paul lays down the basis for a happy wedded life in the words, wives, be in subjection to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Perhaps these instructions are not always well understood. Sometimes one of the counsels and sometimes the other is unduly emphasized. Some men insist upon the first, wives, be in subjection to your husband. And they interpret these words somewhat harshly, as if the wife were, only, were to be only as a child, or even as a servant, whose duty is to minister to his desires, to please him, and to run at his every call and command. This is in accordance with the heathen notions of marriage relation, but it is not after the Christian teaching. If a man will insist on his wife fulfilling her part, he must also insist on honestly fulfilling his own part all of the sacred duties which are his as a husband. What then is the husband's share in this happy homemaking? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, 
A husband is to love his wife. Is love despotic? Does love put its object in a servant's place? No, love serves. It seeks not its own. It desires not to be served, but to serve. It doesn't demand attention, deference, service, subjection. It seeks rather to serve and to give honor. So, being the leader in the home does not mean that you make every decision. It does not mean that you micromanage. It does not mean that you don't listen to your wife. There's plenty of stories in the Bible where the husband should have listened to the wife and didn't, and there's outcomes because of it. Um, but you are to lead the family, and you are to set the tone. And if you read Scripture, you see that the husbands are responsible for making sure that there is love in the home. The father is responsible to make sure that there's love in the home. If you look at Ephesians 5, I'm just taking uh, four different sentences out of it. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. It is clear that the responsibility for this husband and this father is to love. It's to love his wife. It's to love his children. It's to make it a house that has love in it. Fathers are to discipline their children. Fathers are called to teach their children the things of God in the normal day-to-day living. When you sit at your house, when you walk, when you lay down, when you rise. It is to be part of the conversation of the home. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that his ministry was like a father with his children. And he says, we exhorted you and we encouraged you and we charge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. And this is what fathers are to do. Fathers are to exhort their children. Fathers are to encourage their children. Fathers are to charge them to walk in a manner that's worthy of God. And they're to bring these things up to their children and to encourage and exhort. They don't, they don't push like the story of the first guy who, who wanted his son to succeed no matter what so that when his son was struggling, was going through problems and manifested in suicide, but that father did nothing at all but just sent him off to college. This is the exact opposite. This is a father who brings love into the house and who encourages their children, who exhorts their children, who cares for the children, who's kind. And this is what God has called us to do. Fathers are also to intercede in prayer on behalf of their children. So we have in the Old Testament, we have the story of uh, Job. So Job is a guy, he's got ten kids, he's got seven sons, and he's got three daughters. His children grow up, they leave the house, they each have houses of their own, they're now on their own. And they like to go from one house to another and just have dinner. It says they eat and they drink together, they spend time together. So Maybe they go to like son number two's house today and all the other nine go there. Maybe they go to like daughter number three the next time and they all go there. And they all have dinner together and they enjoy it. And it says that Job the next morning gets up early. He gets up early. And it says he offers burnt offerings for his children. Ten kids. One burnt offering for each child that he has. Because he says this, it may be that my children have sinned and curse God in their hearts. And so he intercedes for them. He said, my father, these kids, when they get together and they're doing their thing, they might have sinned. They might have cursed God in their hearts. And it says he does this continually, over and over, interceding for his children. We are to intercede for our children over and over and over. So that's the fathers. And again, even when we look at this, You know, if you take the passages from the Bible that say father, mother, or child, like your Bible's like this big, (laughs) right? But if you take a regular Bible, right, the regular Bible's like this big. So, you know, I say this is what it says for fathers, and this is what I say for mothers, but really it's like all of Scripture combined that we look at. We don't just look at the one one father and mother thing. So while, while I say, okay, that's it for the fathers, it's really all of Scripture. And all of scripture applies for the mothers as well. So, what about the mothers? Uh, we begin with the whole uh, leadership uh, thing. And women are to follow the husband's leadership. And they are to labor together in distinctive roles. 
But once again, Scripture tells us that there's sin in the earth. Scripture tells us that this will be difficult. It was back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God gives them those curses. God lets them know at that point that this is going to be a factor and that it's going to be difficult. One commentator says this. He says, people under authority as a result of sin, and it's not even, it's that communal sin. It's not even like, oh, you're a horrible person or anything. But it's a sin that's built in. It's that natural rebellion that comes inside. It's that indwelling sin that's there. And so he says, people under authority as a result of sin often resent their role or they seek to minimize it or to escape it or to take that position of leadership. So women are urged to submit because it is God's will. And it should be done to the Lord with respect and a gentle and quiet spirit. So, what else are mothers called to do? Mothers are to care for the household. And we see this in Proverbs 31. And so when we look at Proverbs 31, we look at these different things, we're faced with the question of working outside the house. And so, how does a woman take care of the house, manage the house, and balance that sometimes having to work outside of the house? So this is from uh, the book that Mitch was talking about, um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, Wayne Grudem and a bunch of other guys uh, did it. But he says this. He says, Some Christians have interpreted Titus's 2.5 as be workers at home to mean that any work outside the home is inappropriate for the wife and the mother. But the fact that wives should care for their home doesn't necessarily imply that they should not work outside the home any more than the statement that an overseer in the church should manage his own household. It means that manage his own household means that he cannot work outside the home. In neither case does the text say that. The dynamic equivalent translation of Titus 2.5 uh, by the NIV to be busy at... Whoops, let me do this. Um, Titus 2.5 catches the force of Paul's admonition, namely that a wife should be, should be a diligent homemaker. Moreover, Proverbs depicts a wife and mother whose support for the family extends well beyond ordinary uh, domestic chores. She considers fields and she buys it. She plants a vineyard. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies belts to the trademen. Since Scripture interprets Scripture and its teaching is consistent and unified, we realize that the pictures of Proverbs is not contradicted by the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, we must realize that the emphasis on the home is the very point that the Proverbs passage makes. The woman in Proverbs works to take care of her family and to fulfill her responsibility to her family. So, I bring that up because it's hard sometimes, right? Sometimes we don't have a choice. We have to work. And so we have to take scripture and kind of balance that and see what it is. And there's different points in our lives and there's different times in our lives. But I just wanted to bring that up just to look at that. So the idea is that we care for the home. And then the idea is that we work for the home. And that's where our responsibility uh, lies. But it's just important just to... Uh, I think just to see what these guys um, say about that because it's a tough situation. There's a lot of tough situations that we have. We have single parents who don't have a choice. What choice do they have? They're single. They have to work. They have to uh, bring those in. And so we need to be sensitive uh, to those things. So in the home, right, what else does mothers, what else do mothers do? Mothers are, bring, are to bring a love and a gentleness to the home. They are to share their very lives. The Apostle Paul spends some time in Thessalonica, and he's trying to describe to them what he did. He's trying to let them know his care for them. He's trying to let them know his, his uh, concern for them. And he says this. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very own selves, because you become dear for us. He says, this is what you are. The best picture that he could describe as what they were trying to do when they were there is this picture of this mother, this gentleness and this love, and this desire to not only do what has to be done, but to share their very lives, to give their very selves, to give their very hearts, to give everything there is, 
That's the best description that Paul can possibly give of it. And J.R. Miller uh, once again says this. He says, there's parts of the home duty, again, this was written in the 1800s, there's parts of the home duty which a woman can do infinitely better than a man. Men's hands are clumsy and often hurt gentle hearts when it is meant that they should give help and healing. There are tasks for which a woman's gentle hands are better fitted. Mothers are to bring their children to God. They are to teach their children about God. They are to take those small moments, those ordinary times in the day that just come and go, and make them times that they look to God. Make them times that their children look to God so that they're reminded of God and they know about God. They know about his goodness, his kindness, his love. They know about God's discipline. They know about God's forgiveness. They know about God's restoration with them. They know about what it looks like when a relationship gets broken and when a relationship gets stored. These are the things that they are to do. Colossians 1.28 says, Jesus Christ we proclaim and we warn everyone and we teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what mothers are to do. You are to warn your children. Teach them with all wisdom so that you can present them mature in Christ. And Paul goes on and he says, for this I toil with all of my energy that he powerfully works within me. And mothers, I imagine that you feel the toil and that you feel the struggle and that you feel your own lack of energy. But the promise here is that it's Christ's energy that powerfully works within you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working within you. And it is that same power that works in your children's lives. And then, mothers, you too are called to pray for your children. And you're called to pray with your children. So I have two children. Uh, my wife's name is Mickey. I've got a son, Ben, who's 20. He's off at college right now. I've got, her who, I've got a daughter who's 25. And Mickey has prayed with these kids every night before bedtime since they were little, as long as they can remember, as long as she can remember, as long as I can remember. Every single night, you know, obviously, they were, they were home. She would pray for these kids. My son is now 20 years old. And before he goes to bed, when he's at home, he comes waiting for Mickey to pray for him. And Mickey, you know, he's like this much taller than her. Mickey will like have her hand up on his shoulder like that, and she prays for him every night. My daughter is 25 years old, and she will not go to bed without Mickey praying for her first because that's what they've always done, and it's just that prayer that's there. And if they're God, Mickey's praying for him before she goes to bed. And we're called to pray for our children always. Um, together. What do parents do together? So those are the roles, right? And as you can see, there was a lot of interlap, right? These roles mesh together, and they should mesh together, right? But as parents together, you're to model what a marriage looks like, what a family looks like, what a healthy marriage looks like. You're to model God's forgiveness and that restoration that we talked about a minute ago. What does it look like when a relationship is broken, when, when a parent and a parent argue, and then another parent seeks forgiveness? And another parent forgives when they repent and they forgive and that, res that relationship is restored. We show what God does for us through that. We're to teach them how to be part of the church. Some people end up putting the children first and they put the family first above everything else. And sometimes it almost seems like they make an idol of the family as this is the greatest thing of all. And the family becomes an idol. But God teaches different than that, right? And... We don't love our families more than Christ. In fact, Jesus has a very harsh saying that says, if you don't love me more than your mother and your brothers and your sisters, you're not worthy of me. He doesn't mean worthy in a salvation sense, but he's like, this is what it means. It means to put God first. And so as we teach our kids this, we teach them to be part of the church. We teach them to be active members of the church. We teach them to do the work of the ministry as we are called to do. The other thing we do together is we, we equip our children to leave. Genesis is clear that our children are going to leave and cleave. So from the time that they're born, one of the things that we have in the back of their mind is how do I prepare him to leave? How do you prepare her to leave? What do I do in this situation? What can I teach them as they go through? And again, 
parents together instruct and discipline them. Remember the Old Testament story where God says, look, it's a, it's a, it's a godly parents, but they have this rebellious son. What do they do? It says, if the son won't listen to the voice of the father or the voice of his mother, even though they discipline him, right? So you've got the voice of the father, the voice of the mother. They're trying to discipline him. Then he says, you go to the elders together and you say, he will not obey our voice. So it's together. It's something that you both do. You both uh, discipline. You both instruct. You both uh, teach them to uh, obey. It's to be on that same uh, page. Single parents, your role is difficult to say the least. For on your shoulders fall the task of raising the child, taking care of your home, providing. Very, very, very difficult. God is your father. Go to him in prayer and plead for God's help. Say to him, I am weak and you are strong and I need your help. And then reach out to someone at the church. We're a church body. We're a church family. And we who are single and parents who need help need to reach out. And we who uh, are on the other side aren't, we need to reach out to the single parents as well. This is this two-way street. It's humbling and it's difficult for people to ask for help. And lots of times they don't know what to ask for. So we want to reach out. We want to recognize who those are. We want to be part of their lives. We want to do these things, right? Because it's difficult. God is faithful. If he gives someone the responsibility, he will give them the strength to do it. A single parent, as a single parent, you have a unique ability in where you have to rely on God and not yourself. Other people, in some sense, not an accurate theological sense, but just from a human perspective, walking out lights, life sense, don't really need to rely on God. They can do it themselves, especially if they you know, make good money and they have a car and you know, nice houses. And that, in essence, sometimes you feel like you don't need to rely on God. A single parent has that always before them, that need to rely on God and humbling themselves and coming before God. It's funny because I was just sitting down here and I was writing on my notes. I had the whole thing down, ready to go and everything. And I realized that I hadn't singly once addressed what the child's role was. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I should probably do that. So I just made myself a couple of notes right here. Um, scripture's clear about a couple of things. Number one, children are to obey their parents. That's clear. Children are to obey their parents. Number two, it's clear that children are to honor their parents as well. We have these two uh, fundamental foundational things that children are to obey parents and children are to honor parents. But as I pointed out uh, before with the scripture, children are in our care for a very short time when you look at the length of a life. And when you look at the length of eternity, it's almost nothing that they're in our care. And so the child's responsibility towards the parents is to obey and, towards, and to honor them. But when we look at the, the child's responsibility towards God, we have all of scripture, right? And we have all of this where the child's responsibilities are the same as our responsibilities towards God. It's the same responsibilities. It's the same uh, things that we go through, you know, faith. Um, it's the same with relationships when they're broken, with asking for forgiveness, right? Confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness, restoring this. We can take all the scripture, and this is the role of the child. But during this time, the things that we really want to work on are those two things, obeying the parents and honoring uh, the parents. Do you ever get discouraged? As a parent, do you ever get discouraged? <laughs> As a parent, are you ever honest? <laughs> right? So sometimes we just plain get discouraged, right? We just want to give up sometimes. We just want it all to be over. Why? Why do we get discouraged? There's a bunch of reasons, and I'm only going to cover a couple of reasons, right? Number one, sometimes we get discouraged because we place our hope in our children. And we place our value in our children, or our identity in our children. So we judge ourselves by how well our children are doing. Or 
We think that other people judge us by how well our children are doing. So when our children are not doing well, we are not doing well. Other times we get discouraged because it seems like we don't see any growth at all, right? We go over and over and over, and we've covered this, and we've done this, and we've been here, and we've done it again, and it just keeps coming back and back, and it seems like we don't see any growth. But growth is there. And some growth is slow. Some, pain, some growth is painfully slow, but it's there even if we don't see it. And someday that sapling will be a tree. Some situation, the scourge comes from having an unbelieving spouse, right? So you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And the unbelieving one thinks that they have to do, or f just feels that weight, that they have to do all the work for themselves. And they desire it to be different. They want it to be different. They want that unity of the husband and wife who are on that same uh, page together. And they're growing together in Christ. And their family's growing together in Christ. And they want that. And they desire that. But they don't have that. And so they get discouraged. Uh, J.R. Miller, once again, uh, you can see why I like this guy so well. He says, uh, oh, look at this. That was Well, that's the other half of that other quote that I told you about. <laughs> I can't find this one. All right, so I don't have this one. All right, so I'm just going to tell you what he said instead. He says this. Here's what J.R. Miller says. He says, we should not grow discouraged even though our homes are not yet what we crave. There are some who feel that the battle is hopeless, that they can never grow into beautiful life and character in their present circumstances. That is a mistake. It is possible to grow into all beauty of peace wherever we are placed. A lily finds its home in a black bog, but it blooms into perfect loveliness. Suppose that your home life is discouraging, discouraging even to the last degree, yet you may live sweetly in the midst of it through the grace and the help of God. And who knows, who knows but that your sweet life may become the power of God to change the home life into heavenliness. Perhaps... God put you as leaven there to leaven the whole lump. And so we've seen that before, and you can see that in the book of 1 Peter where he talks about this unbelieving husband and wife. And he says, who knows? It's that you might be there, that your husband might be one. And he says it a couple of times too, um, where a husband might be uh, won over by a wife who doesn't say anything but just her gentle, quiet spirit that loving spirit that goes through. So those are hard times if your husband is not a believer or if your wife is not a believer. But don't get discouraged. Continue to go to God. Continue to pray for them. Be that gentle, quiet spirit that, that attracts and doesn't tear down. And don't, don't, don't give up hope. In these times of discouragement, where do we put our hope? See, our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in our words. Our hope is not in our actions. Our hope is not in our dreams. Our hope is not in our desires, and our hope is not in our power. But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the power of the gospel and not in ourselves. Listen to these uh, first and third verses of the song, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. He says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the overwhelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Romans 16.25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Christ. Our strength is in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.5 says, uh, well, you know, it's like, so before I even say this one, right, lots of times we think our words don't do anything. We think it just doesn't make any sense. We've talked to these kids over and over. we said the right things. We think we've done the right things, and yet nothing seems to change. We get discouraged. Paul goes to uh, the Corinthians, and he says this. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. It is in, the power lies in Christ. The power lies in the Holy Spirit. These words that we say are Christ's words. 
And that's where the power lies. That's where we put our hope in. Right? We put our hope in God's promise. Philippians 1.6 says, It's God who started the work. It's God who will finish the work. at the day of, And He will complete it at the day of Christ. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We can do nothing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. His forgiveness, both for our children and for ourselves. And so God's plan for families is to raise children for his eternal glory. It's to have children who know Jesus, who love Jesus. And I want to close with this thought from J.R. Miller. He says this, Let us live more for our homes. Let us love one another more. Let us cease to complain, criticize, and contradict each other. Let us be more patient with each other's faults. Let us not keep back the warm, loving words that lie in our hearts until it's too late for them to give comfort. Soon, separation will come. Then every better word spoken and every neglect of love's duties will be as a thorn in our hearts. What are some of the secrets of the happy home life? The answer might be given in one word, Christ. Christ at the marriage altar. Christ at the bridal journey. Christ when the, news, when the new home is set up. Christ when the baby is born. Christ when the child dies. Christ in the pinching times. Christ in the day of plenties. Christ in the nursery, in the kitchen, and in the parlor. Christ in the toil and in the rest. Christ all along the years. Christ when the wedded pair walk towards the sunset gates. Christ in that sad hour when farewells are spoken and one goes on before and the other stays bearing the unshared grief. Christ is the secret to the happy home life. So as you seek to raise your children for God's eternal glory, always remember to look towards Christ, to look towards that glorious gospel, and have that goal of raising kids for God's eternal glory. Let me just close with prayer, and then we'll uh, answer some questions. Father God, we come before you, and we just thank you, Lord. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to write these words on our heart. Lord, we don't want to understand only intellectually, but we want to understand deeper, Lord, where the heart is, your Holy Spirit lies, so that this might be our goal for our whole life, so that when the good times are here, or whether the bad times are here, whether things are easy, whether things are difficult, whether there seems to be much hope or whether there seems to be little hope, but we can build our foundation on you. You are the solid rock that we build on. So Lord, help us to have this goal that we are raising children for your glory, for your eternal glory. They are here for a few moments, and they are with you for eternity, Lord. So help us along the way. In your precious and holy name I pray, amen.